Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello and welcome to episode eight of the CCRN Review, where today we're going to be looking at hemodynamic monitoring troubleshooting and complications. For those of you that are joining for the first time, this walk through the core curriculum is really kind of a a tailor-made type uh, series of podcasts where you can choose the podcast that will best help you prepare for the CCRN. So for those of you that are new, welcome to my podcast series. And for those of you that have joined me in previous podcasts, Thank you so much for coming back for uh, another episode. Now, before we get into today's content, I just want to mention a few things. The first being a reminder to be sure and subscribe and also to head on over to my website, which is called khoppypresents.com. If you head over to the website, you'll be able to subscribe at that point. You'll be able to see what is scheduled for upcoming podcasts throughout this month and upcoming months. You'll be able to access brain teasers, which are little, uh, let's just call them study guides that I've put together to help you prepare to take the CCRN exam. From my website, feel free to download Uh, a brain teaser. The answers are there for you as well. So without further ado, let's get into today's content. If you'll remember from episode seven, we started talking about hemodynamic terms. We defined a lot of hemodynamic terms and talked a, a bit about some clinical and diagnostic applications of hemodynamic monitoring. We also started talking about ensuring um, accuracy in our hemodynamic monitoring by doing things like zeroing and calibrating and leveling to the flabostatic axis. And we also uh, talked about performing the square wave test. We're going to continue onward today then talking about uh, a little bit more about the waves. And then we're going to get into troubleshooting. In episode nine, we're going to get into clinical application of everything we've talked about. So we're going to be looking at some patient cases along with some numbers and applying the things that we learned to those clinical case studies. Because quite honestly, on the exam, you will have a fair amount of cases, I like to call them story problems, where you have to look at the hemodynamics and determine 
uh, the intervention that you would most likely see employed. So in the last episode, when we kind of walked the tip of the catheter through the different heart chambers and out into the pulmonary artery, we first started out talking about right atrial pressure, which very commonly we refer to as CVP. We also said that that right atrial pressure is a small little undulating waveform. Well, it's yes, it's, it's made up of little undulations, but um, there is some clinical application to why you're seeing what you're seeing. So when you have a waveform that you're looking at on the monitor, you always want to correlate electrical events with mechanical activity. And what I mean here is that you want to look at the EKG, which is the electrical event, and you want to correlate that with the mechanical event that we're seeing in terms of the right atrial pressure waveform. Because really what that little undulating waveform uh, reflects for you is it reflects atrial contraction and then filling. Contraction, filling, contraction, filling. Sometimes we actually see a wave associated with uh, closure of the tricuspid valve. We don't always see that. That's known as a C wave. So let's just kind of bring the electricity together with the mechanics. So when we see a P wave, no big news flash to anyone that the P wave represents the spread of electricity through the atria. Now that spread will kind of culminate in kind of like a pause at the level of the AV node. Now that pause allows time for the atria to contract. So if you were to take an EKG waveform and draw a line down from the end of the P wave to intersect with your central venous pressure or right atrial pressure tracing, what you would identify then is what is called an A wave. An A wave represents atrial contraction. So when you look at electricity and then you look at your hemodynamic waveforms, which actually are mechanical, you think about mechanics, we have the P wave representing the spread of electricity through the atria, and then we have the mechanics of it, and that is the atria contracting in response to that. And that will produce for us what is known as an A wave. Now, I want you to think about this physiologically. When the right atrium contracts, it completes right ventricular filling. So the last part of ventricular filling is when the atria contract. Now that isn't a newsflash, I'm sure to you, because you know that that atrial contraction produces what we like to call atrial kick. We also know that when there's a clinical situation where we lose atrial contraction, let's say, for example, an atrial fibrillation, well, now we lose up to 30% of ventricular filling or um, we lose our atrial kick and that can have a pretty big impact on our patient's blood pressure. So again, to summarize, at the end of the P wave, you draw a line down, you find the A wave there. The A wave represents atrial contraction that 
also represents the time in which the right ventricle is at its fullest point. So really, guys, we should be taking the mean value of the A wave to determine our pressure measurement. Because think about it now. We know that when the right atrium contracts and fills up that RV, and it's at its very fullest point right after contraction, we know that to be right ventricular preload. So then why not take the mean value of the A wave to really determine what right ventricular preload is? So, and and that is best practice, by the way, the use of the mean value of the A wave in order to uh, determine right ventricular filling. Now, sometimes, guys, you can actually see a little bump, the A wave, that correlates with the end of the P wave if you draw a line down. But then there's another little bump that follows that, which is uh, called the C wave. And the C wave really is tricuspid valve closure. Well, now you know for sure that that right ventricle is at its fullest point. So even looking for the bump right after the A wave, you'll find that C wave. That really correlates with the maximum amount of filling in the right ventricle, and it gives us the best pressure measurement. And so when you look at an A wave, uh, when you take the highest and lowest point of the A wave, it and you, and you take a mean value of that to determine your right-sided filling, right in between the highest and lowest point of that A wave, if you see another bump, that's a C wave. And so it really reflects the importance of uh, taking the, the mean value of the A wave, which is right at that C wave where the tricuspid valve closes, in order to determine the maximal amount of right ventricular filling right before ejection. Now let's move on electrically from there. The P wave, we said, represents spread of electrical impulses throughout the atrium the right atrium, and then we took a pause at the level of the AV node. Now we're headed downward, right? We're headed down the bundle of his to the right and left bundle branches and out to the Purkinje fibers. And we know that electrically, what that is going to give us is what is called a QRS complex. Okay, no big news flash to anybody. Now, <clears throat> what you will also see is from a mechanics standpoint, you will see a V wave. A V wave represents the time in which the atria are filling. Now, now think about this physiologically, guys. The atria are filling while the ventricles are contracting. So as the right atrium is filling, the right ventricle is contracting. And so we would see the V wave for the right atrial pressure waveform immediately after the T wave. Okay. So electrical events preceding mechanical events. Now let's think about this for a second because after a while, you know, these waves kind of can get jumbled up in your head. And if you're listening to this in your car or you're out running or walking, you really have to visualize this because you don't have an illustration in front of you. 
So let's think about it for a second. The A wave represents contraction of the right atrium in the central venous pressure tracing, okay? Now, if that person has tricuspid stenosis, let's say, that would cause a pretty elevated A wave. Now, normally the A wave should be very small and undulating. If that right atrium is having to work extra hard against a a, um, stenotic tricuspid valve, we would see an elevated A wave as a result of that. Let me also ask you this. Here's a good brain teaser for you. In upcoming episodes, we are going to uh, be also incorporating a lot of physical assessment, okay? And in fact, I do have a podcast that I'm going to be dedicated just specifically to cardiovascular assessment. And there we are going to be talking about an S4. An S4 occurs immediately prior to systole and an S4 occurs as a result of filling into a non-compliant ventricle. Maybe it's somebody with diastolic dysfunction related to hypertension. You know, we'll discuss those etiologies a bit later because right now we're trying to understand this concept of A and V waves. So if you have a person that has, let's say, for example, atrial fibrillation. Can a person with atrial fibrillation ever have an S4? Think about it. An S4 occurs during the end of diastole. We call it pre-systole, a pre-systolic sound. Now, I want you to think physiologically now about what happens at the end of diastole. At the end of diastole, the atria squeeze, do they not? Normally, normally. And so as the atrium, the right atrium squeezes, that gives us an A wave. Well, now I'm asking you a question about somebody with atrial fib. And when a patient goes into atrial fibrillation, we know that we lose that atrial contraction. So can anybody with with atrial fibrillation have an S4? The answer to that is no. And the reason for that is, is because you do not have atrial contraction. And you know that an S4 is produced when the atria try and kick that last bit of, of that 30% of ventricular filling down from the atria into the ventricles at the end of diastole. And that's why it's called an end diastolic or a pre-systolic sound. So that's some clinical application um, of this knowledge. Now, <clears throat> over on the left side, the left atrium, If you were doing a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure or a pulmonary artery occlusive pressure as it's known now, or let's just plain old, you know, call it a wedge and be done with it. If you're doing a wedge pressure, you get the same kind of waves that you would over on the right side because it's an atrium. It's a venous pressure waveform. 
and it's occurring over on the left side. So indeed, you would get an A wave as the left atrium contracts. The difference, though, is the fact that the A wave for the wedge is going to be in alignment with the end of the QRS complex. Whereas we said the A wave with the right atrial pressure tracing was in alignment with the end of the P wave. And the reason for that should make sense to you. And that is, I want you to think about how the PA catheter is configured. Which port is closest to the transducer? Well, certainly the right atrial port or the proximal port is the closest to the transducer. And that's why you see the waves in alignment with the A wave in alignment with the, um, the end of the P wave, for example. Whereas when you're talking about the uh, wedge pressure tracing, that comes from the distal port. That distal port is farther away from the transducer. And so coming from the distal port, the A wave is going to wind up being in alignment a little bit later, like with the end of the QRS. It still means the same, only it's talking about left-sided events. So when you take a wedge pressure measurement, it should be a mean value of the A wave because that represents the time in which the um, left ventricle is at its fullest point and ready to eject. Oftentimes we don't see a C wave that kind of gets lost in the shuffle uh, being transmitted all the way from the distal tip of the catheter to the transducer. Now, what I want to bring up is the V wave. The V wave for the wedge pressure tracing is located in the T to P interval. In other words, right in between the end of the T wave from one complex and the beginning of the P wave for the next complex in the T to P interval. Now, who cares and why do we need to know this? Well, I want you to think about a patient post-MI. And I want you to think about a patient that has perhaps papillary muscle dysfunction. Maybe some of the chordae tendinae have torn off the papillary muscle. We know that the papillary muscle and the chordae tendinae really serve as anchors for the AV valves, both the mitral and tricuspid valves. So again, the papillary muscle being a muscle, you have an anterior papillary muscle, you have a posterior papillary muscle. Being a muscle, they can be affected by myocardial infarction and uh, necrosis. And all of a sudden you have separation of the chordae tendinae from the papillary muscle. Now, how is that going to manifest? It's going to manifest in a big, huge V wave in the wedge pressure tracing. And this is almost invariably a question on the exam. And it's considered a high scaled score question as well, because it, it causes you to really have to think 
um, more than just a, a, a rote memorization sort of a thing. So what happens here? Now think about it. A V wave just normally now is produced as a, an atria, either right or left fills. Okay. Now, when do the atria fill? They fill when the AV valves are closed. That makes good sense. And so if we have a ruptured papillary muscle or torn chordae tendine, what's going to happen is that mitral valve is not going to be able to close. Therefore, every time that ventricle contracts, instead of blood taking the pathway of highest resistance, which would be going out into the aorta, the blood will take the pathway of least resistance and it will go from left ventricle into left atrium across that, that valve, that insufficient valve and back into the uh, pulmonary vascular bed via the pulmonary veins. Now this is a patient that will go into florid pulmonary edema very rapidly. You've got yourself, if you're not coding right now, you will be soon. Uh, so this is a patient that is in cardiogenic shock related to papillary muscle dysfunction or ruptured chordae tendine. And the mortality rate on that is very high. So what you would see then is that big old V wave in the wedge pressure tracing that is between the T and P of the uh, upcoming complex. So in the T to P interval, not only that, but you'll have a patient that, as I said, goes into cardiogenic shock and they have a, a systolic murmur that's going to reach up and just grab you by the throat. So again, this is blending electrical with mechanical, with etiology, with physical assessment. The test really calls upon you to be able to do these kinds of things. Now, a big old V wave doesn't have to do with only papillary muscle rupture or or torn chordae, tendine, that's not the only cause. You can have somebody that has this big old ventricle that's engorged with fluid and the fluid and the pressure uh, actually pull on the annulus or the ring around the mitral valve, causing the leaflets to not be able to approximate. So the mitral valve is not closing properly. No matter how you look at it, if the mitral valve is not closing property, properly, you're going to have regurge of flow from the left ventricle to the left atrium, and you're going to have a patient that goes into pulmonary edema. So again, that big old murmur that comes at you too starts out softer and gets louder, louder, louder as the patient's mitral valve becomes less and less competent. So uh, again, prepare your head for this on the exam. And that is the uh, manifestation of a large V wave and the fact that it has to do with mitral regurge. Let me also mention there are times in which clinical situations in which 
we can have both an elevated A wave and an elevated V wave. And those would be in circumstances like cardiac tamponade or perhaps the person with constrictive pericarditis or hypervolemia. Those are some examples where we have overfilling, hypervolemia, heart failure. So we can see elevated A and V waves. So one last thing about these A and V waves that I want to mention, and that is that there are situations, one of them we named already, like atrial fibrillation, where we don't have an A wave. And you may be saying to yourself, well, wait a minute, Kay, just a little while ago, you told me that the way that I'm most accurate in measuring my hemodynamic uh, wave is to look for the mean value or average value of the A wave. Well, what do I do in patients with atrial fib? Well, it's actually quite easy, guys. And that is just to draw a line down from the end of the QRS complex and where it intersects the right atrial pressure waveform or wedge wedge waveform, for that matter, at the end of exhalation, oh, that's your value. That's your value when you don't have an A wave. So think about the circumstances in which you wouldn't have an A wave. Um, So we don't have that uniform spread of impulses throughout the atria. It could be somebody in a paced rhythm. It could be, well, we talked about atrial fib. It could also be somebody with a junctional type of, of rhythm. Another thing that we need to talk about is catheter fling or catheter whip. So this is where literally the tip of the catheter, the tip of the pulmonary artery catheter is like flinging around, if you will. And so when we talk about catheter fling or whip, it happens most often when the tip is going along with arterial flow versus against it. Let me explain this to you. We are much more likely to have a catheter whip effect in the pulmonary artery catheter when compared to a arterial line that's out in the radial artery. See, in the radial artery, the catheter is facing against arterial flow, whereas a PA catheter is kind of going with arterial flow out in the pulmonary artery. So we're much more likely to see kind of a flinging effect when it's out in the PA. And there are certain patient populations that are just set up for this. So we think about patients with pulmonary hypertension. So immediately, you know, it comes to mind our COPD patients or perhaps our patients with um, mitral valve disease that have pulmonary hypertension as a result. That's where we can see an increased fling effect. So if you have a pulmonary artery catheter that's giving you a lot of fling or a lot of catheter whip, um, you can try, not you yourself, but you know your provider can try um, repositioning the tip a little bit and seeing if that is going to take care of the fling. Sometimes there's nothing we can do about it except to use a mean pressure, a mean PA pressure 
for targeting our interventions um, and our assessments. So if you have real bad whip or fling using the mean PA and just using it as a trending measure is probably your best bet. Next, we're going to take a look at some of the complications associated with hemodynamic monitoring, whether you're talking about a pulmonary artery catheter or some of the things we're going to cover apply to an arterial line as well. So the first one is an air embolus. Um, that's why we put the patient in Trendelenburg in order to uh, float a pulmonary artery catheter. It's also why we make special efforts to ensure that the monitoring tubing is free from air bubbles. There are no air bubbles in the transducer. And, um, and also that all the lumens of the catheter are, are flushed prior to insertion. If an air embolism is suspected, then the patient needs to be turned to the left side with head down. And just so you know, that is called uh, Durant's maneuver. And then, of course, administering oxygen. Arterial puncture during venous cannulation. That certainly is a possibility in patients that we are inserting a pulmonary artery catheter into. Because when you think about anatomy, you think about the fact that the carotid artery and the jugular vein, they kind of share the same sheath, the same covering. They're side by side. And so indeed, you could inadvertently puncture the carotid rather than the internal jugular. Now, again, um, we look at the type of flow that's coming out. Um, is it bright red and pulsatile? Then we think about carotid versus, you know, kind of more of a, a venous flow, which is non-pulsatile. However, what if you have somebody, which is your typical critical care patient that's crashing, and that is, you know, somebody that has like not much of a blood pressure and their oxygen level is really low, so their, their saturation's real low. Well, now the blood doesn't look bright red, and it's not very pulsatile because the, the patient doesn't have much of a pressure. Well, when in doubt, pull it out and start again. Or, you know, think about other ways that you can assess. For example, if we hook it up to our pressure lines, are we getting an arterial or a venous waveform. If we're getting an arterial waveform, we know we're in an artery. So again, that arterial waveform is what? Systole, and then as it comes down, we have a dichrotic notch, and then diastole, versus a small little undulating waveform, which would be venous. Now remember, if this person is profoundly hypotensive, in order to pick up on an arterial waveform, if it's chosen, that you're going to hook this up to the pressure tubing to see what kind of waveform it is, you may have to change your scale if somebody has a real low blood pressure in order to be able to discern whether the waveform looks more arterial versus venous. Also, balloon rupture. Balloon rupture is definitely a possible complication in using a pulmonary artery catheter. Yes, the balloon is tested prior to insertion. That's just common and best practice to do. 
but at any point the balloon can be ruptured. Now, typically, I mean, according to manufacturer recommendations, the time that the catheter should be in at most is 72 hours. And it's very commonplace for the manufacturer to say that the balloon is going to last for about 72 inflations. So, you know, just keep that in mind. Keep in mind also that it's plastic. Um, We don't want to overinflate the balloon. Stop injecting the air. As soon as you see a change from a pulmonary artery waveform to a wedge waveform, And I need to mention here that you are going to wedge the catheter based on what your um, facility policy is. It's very commonplace for facilities to say, we do not inflate the catheter tip. We do not do wedges. It is the resident or it might be the doctor or we don't wedge the catheter tip unless we have a doctor's order. And that's fine too. Know what your policy says as to whether or not you inflate that catheter tip. Now, going back to the CCRN, keep in mind that on the exam, they will expect you to know um, things about wedging the catheter tip, even if in your specific facility, it's not policy to do so. So we're only, if we're allowed to, um, we're only inflating until we have a change in waveform from pulmonary artery to the small little undulating waveform of a, uh, of a wedge. So if we're finding, for example, that we require very little volume in the balloon in order to go into the wedge waveform, say we only put a half a cc in this balloon that actually can take up to 1.5 cc's. Now we only put in a half a cc and we're already in wedge position. What that suggests to you is that the catheter is starting to migrate. And on the exam, they're going to expect you to be able to recognize when a catheter migrates into a wedge position spontaneously. Because keep in mind, as I said before, the catheter is plastic. So we're putting something plastic into a human that is 98 plus degrees. Well, when you put plastic into something 98 degrees, it's going to warm up real nice and warm and it's going to soften. And as this uh, catheter softens, you run the risk of the catheter tip migrating into a wedge position spontaneously and you get a wedge waveform without even wedging the catheter tip. Now, if that is the case, do not inflate the balloon. If that catheter tip has migrated into a small vessel and you see a PA all of a sudden go into a wedge, do not inflate the catheter tip. I've had more than one nurse over the years say, well, I would just kind of put a little air in it, see if I could pop it out. Well, you're not going to pop it out. The only thing you're going to pop is the patient's pulmonary artery. So it needs to be pulled back. It needs to be repositioned um, because otherwise the patient is going to wind up with pulmonary infarct. And we're going to be talking about pulmonary infarct in in just a few moments. If your balloon 
uh, does rupture. And you would know that because, you know, you're trying to put some air in the balloon and, and to, to change it from a PA to a wedge waveform. And you meet up with no resistance whatsoever. The plunger goes in without any resistance that you feel on the other end. And also you don't see a change in waveform then you need to think about that uh, balloon as being ruptured. It should be labeled as such, and it should not be used again. And so then, you know, you're going to use the PAD as your trending measure, the pulmonary artery diastolic, which for many facilities who by policy don't allow wedging of the catheter tip, they trend the PAD anyhow. So it's a good trending measure when either you don't have a wedge or are unable to wedge the catheter tip. Clotting, that can happen in the catheter. So that's why we maintain our, our uh, monitor tubing. Our uh, tubing that we, pressure tubing is the word that I was looking for that we hook up to our, our lines. And whether you plan on it or not, that transducer is typically going to deliver three to five cc's of flush fluid every hour. And that's aside from any point at which you actually flush the tubing. So if you have three transducers, you're going to be giving 15 cc's of fluid per hour without you even doing any extra flushing. So there's a, a strain gauge inside the transducer that allows for this little intermittent uh, flushing to take place to keep the pressure line patent. So if you do feel you have a clot and you've got a very dampened waveform, um, again, referring to your uh facility policy first to see what the, the policy is around that, uh, you can pull back on and aspirate from the catheter in order to try and remove the clot and then um, see if you're able to flush using the manual flush device. You are not using a, a syringe to push in to flush. You're only using the flush device on the transducer in order to try and flush the line. How about dysrhythmias? Dysrhythmias can certainly occur. Dysrhythmias can occur upon catheter insertion. When you're moving from the, through that right ventricle and out into the PA. And, you know, there's a couple of different reasons why your provider, once they get in the right atrium, will inflate the catheter tip during insertion. And one is, it is a flow-directed catheter. So flow along with an inflated balloon will help kind of propel it forward. But also the other thing is, is that when you inflate that balloon, it prevents the catheter tip from kind of stabbing at the right ventricular endocardium, which could precipitate PVCs, VTAC, irritable rhythms. So it's also a nice touch to know when you're putting in a PAC um, you need to know kind of what your patient's K is, right? So do we have an irritable myocardium from the get-go? Maybe we need to bump up the K before we uh, float in the pulmonary artery catheter. Your eyes need to be on the monitor during catheter insertion. 
so that you can monitor for arrhythmias. You can record opening pressures. Always nice to print a waveform while the catheter is going in. So you can not only um, have documentation of opening pressures, uh, but also the waveforms that correlate with that. And then keep in mind, I just have to say one more time, the accuracy of your pressures is only as good as whether you have prepared them to be so. In other words, your transducers at the flabostatic axis, there's no bubbles in the system. You've performed the square wave test and you have only a couple of oscillations at the end of the uh, squared wave test and you have all of your connections tight, no air bubbles and so on. Now, another thing that we have to keep in mind during insertion is that, and this is particularly kind of scary if you have somebody that has a left bundle branch block, and that is when you enter in over on the right side of the heart, over in the right ventricle, you can cause an intermittent right bundle branch block. So feature this for a second. Here you've got a patient that has a chronic left bundle branch block, and now during pulmonary artery catheter insertion, you've caused a transient right bundle branch block. So what does the patient have left, guys? What they have left is Purkinje fiber conduction at a rate of 20 to 40 per minute. So again, having, you know, code card available, having precautions in place in case that that occurs. And, you know, the nurses that know this best are the nurses in the cath lab that pre- prepare for the possibility of this happening. Now, sometimes we can have a catheter that has been placed and life is good and it's kind of business as usual. And all of a sudden you start seeing what looks like uh, a waveform that looks like VTAC. And the catheter tip has slipped back into the right ventricle. And you know that because you've kind of lost your dichrotic notch, which was visible before in your PA, and also the diastolic component of your waveform has dropped way down. So let's say, for example, you've just gone from a PA of 35 over 15 to now this wide, bizarre, VTAC-looking waveform that is 35 over 2. So it looks like your catheter tip, most likely, has slipped back into the right ventricle. Your first intervention around that is going to be inflating the catheter tip. Now what we're doing by inflating the catheter tip is we're hoping that all the planets are aligned and that flow will grab on and just kind of guide that catheter tip back out into the PA. That's like if all the planets are aligned. It doesn't always work out that way, but we sure hope that it, that it will. We can turn the patient over on their left side and, and hope that it floats back out into the PA and that our, our waveform goes back to the 35 over 15 that it was before. So that's our hope. But in addition to that, we are inflating the catheter tip so that we don't have this catheter tip stabbing at the endocardium, which could precipitate PVCs, VTAC, VFib, all kinds of uh, ugly looking dysrhythmias. So if we can't float it back, 
uh, out there. You know, uh, again, we are not pushing in on the catheter. We are not repositioning it manually. That is a provider that does that. Um, our Nurse Practice Act does not cover us for um, advancing the catheter tip. We're just hoping that by inflating the catheter tip, blood flow will drag it back out into the PA. And if it does not, guys, we've got to get somebody to the bedside to reposition the catheter tip. And if we don't have that available to us and the patient's having PVCs, we will need to deflate the uh, catheter tip, so deflate the balloon, and pull the tip back into the right atrium if the patient is having arrhythmias as a result of it slipping back into the right ventricle. So again, we inflate the balloon, hoping it'll float out into the PA. If we can't get anybody to reposition the catheter tip and we've turned them on their left side, we've tried the coughing, we have tried everything that we know and we can't get it back out into the PA, um, then we're gonna have to deflate the balloon and then pull the tip back into the right atrium, especially if that patient is having uh, ventricular ectopy as a result. This is very commonly, by the way, guys, a CCRN question. Okay, emboli, if you you know feel as though there's a clot, again, we're going to aspirate. We're not going to push. Exsanguination. Well, this is why we're going to make sure that we have our transducers and waveforms visible to us. This is particularly true, you know, when you're thinking about somebody that has an arterial line in place, that waveform and that pressure should always be displayed because if it's not and you have a disconnection, exsanguination is certainly a possibility. We could also have hematoma at the site. That's definitely a possibility. Infection, after all, we're putting in a central line. If we're not using an internal jugular approach for the insertion of the pulmonary artery catheter and we're using a subclavian approach, uh, we have potential for pneumothorax. So following the line insertion with a chest x-ray is extremely important as well. Pulmonary artery rupture. There are lots of patients that are just like sitting ducks set up for this to happen. And that would include the elderly, patients that have pre-existing pulmonary hypertension. So, you know, the COPD has definitely come to mind. Patients receiving anticoagulation, fibrinolytic, or platelet inhi inhibition therapy, patients that are hypothermic, or post-cardiac surgical patients. Now, some ways that we can prevent that is we're only going to inflate the balloon to the maximum amount that it can, no more than that, right? And that's only if we are allowed to by our facilities policy. So we're not going to um, inject any more than the maximum amount, and we're not going to hold that amount in for any more than 15 seconds because we could cause, as a result of this, uh, we could cause pulmonary artery rupture. We also could cause a pulmonary infarction. 
Now, how is it that we would recognize that somebody has a PA rupture? Well, what we would see is sudden onset of hemoptysis along with dyspnea and hypotension. Also, we could see pulmonary infarction as a result of the catheter migrating into a spontaneous wedge position. And what we would see associated with this is chest pain, dyspnea, and a decrease in O2 sat. Thrombosis is the last one I just want to mention, and I want you to think about an arterial line at this point. I want you to think about the person that develops thrombosis and all of a sudden starts developing cool fingers and also develops a mottled appearance uh, to the, the hand and the nail beds. Think thrombosis at that point. Try to aspirate. If you can't get anything out, chances are, I mean, your, your waveform is going to be dampened. Um, the catheter needs to be removed. The arterial line catheter needs to be removed. The provider notified. And we need to follow up with some very close observation thereafter, checking pulses, seeing if we have reestablishment of warmth and color. Worst case scenario, Uh, fibrinolytic therapy or embolectomy could be required. Well, everybody, this is the end of episode eight. Thank you so much for joining me. Please head over to my website and subscribe. And in the meantime, be thinking about episode number nine. Episode number nine will be putting together the waveforms with the numbers with all of the information we've talked about in the last couple of episodes, we'll be putting it all together in episode nine. So I look forward to uh, working with you then. Take care. Bye-bye.